Hello and welcome back to the Flathead Beacon Podcast. I'm Andy Viano. This week, it's my pleasure to bring in former Beacon staff writer Justin Franz to talk about his story, Who is Cliff Doe? That story's in the fall issue of Flathead Living Magazine, and it's on the cover of the September 9th edition of the Flathead Beacon. Justin and I will talk about the fascinating mystery of Cliff Doe, an unknown man whose partial remains were discovered at the bottom of a cliff in 2003, what information investigators do know about the man, why they think they might be able to solve the mystery now, and how the podcast Justin and I produced earlier this year called Project 7 helped him find out about this story. But first, a quick word about the people who make this podcast possible, the members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Members pay as little as $5 per month to support our work and keep the Beacon free to read in print and online, as it has been since we printed our very first edition back in 2007. Plus, Editors Club members are eligible for some great bonus perks as well. To learn more or join the club today, visit BeaconEditorsClub.com. Okay, time now for our featured conversation. Who is Cliff Doe is a question the Flathead County Sheriff's Office has been trying to answer for 17 years. And Justin Franz got an inside look at their investigation for his story on the cover of the September 9th issue of the Flathead Beacon. But before we talk about Cliff, I started our chat by asking Justin just how he first came to learn the story of Cliff Doe. The roots of the story started earlier this year uh, when you and I were working on our podcast, Project 7. Um, There's a number of listeners inside the sheriff's office of Project 7, and about partway through the series, someone in the sheriff's office reached out to me about a cold case here in Flathead County from 2003. Back in October 2003, a pair of hunters were out near Redgate Road uh, in Marion, and they found uh, human remains. And no one has been able to identify who that person is or how they died in 17 years. And so uh, this listener and uh, this uh, detective secretary at the sheriff's office reached out and suggested it would be a good, good story. And, you know, I sort of busy, we were busy with the podcast, so I didn't do anything immediately uh, and sort of kept the story in my back pocket for a few months. And then this summer when, when it was time to start working on the fall issue of Flathead Living Magazine, I thought it would be a, a good, a good story for the magazine, you know, with the, the October tie-in. And so, yeah, started, started working on it over the summer and it came out in this week's Beacon. It'll be in the fall issue of Flathead Living. And why, why now, why 17 years later did this employee at the sheriff's office decide to reach out with you? What is it about the summer of 2020 that, that sort of brought this case back top of mind? So, um, the, the, the text of sec- secretary Shelley, she has, she's been with the sheriff's office for a couple of years and the detective secretary helps detectives with investigations and she's also a, a coroner. So she does a lot of stuff, and over the years at the sheriff's office, she had heard about this case, this missing man in Marion, and took an interest in it. And the last few years, she has updated the missing persons report, made sure the information that they do have about this person is listed in national databases, and just sort of 
sort of took the case under her wing. And as I found during my reporter reporting, a lot of people in the sheriff's office had taken this case under their under their wing. Clyde County Sheriff's Office doesn't have a cold case team. And so usually when a case goes cold like this one has, the case will fall through the cracks in some way. Uh, but over the years, in the last 17 years, a number of people like Shelley and like some other former deputies and detectives have sort of picked up and revisited this case every few years. Call this guy Cliff Doe, as, as you said, because they, they don't know his identity. What, if anything, do authorities know about this person? So uh, Cliff is the nickname that they have given this, this man. He was found at the bottom of a cliff, which is hence the nickname. What they know is that two hunters found his remains um, at the bottom of a cliff in October 2003. And with, with the remains, or they, they found a, a skull and a couple of other bones, but not a full skeleton. With that, they found a bag. It had a, a gun. It had a book. It had a water bottle. It had a bottle of a leave. And they've been able to figure out that this person likely died sometime between 1995 and 2002. And using DNA uh, analysis, they've determined that he's a male, that he's likely somewhere between the age of 30 and 60, that he was, you know, five to six feet tall. You know, they've been able to figure out some basic identifying things about him, but they have not been able to find an identity. And, and that's sort of been, been the hope and the goal of, of the folks who have taken on this case over the years, that they do find the answer to who he was. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that strikes me as not very much to go on. The no. range between 30 and 60 and between five and six feet tall is an, is an awful lot of people. You write about it a little bit in the story, but I mean, what, what are they doing to narrow that potential pool of people down and, and see if they can get to an answer? Because that is, you know, there's a reason it hasn't been solved for 17 years because there's, there's not much there to help right. law enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when this person's remains were discovered in 2003, you know, law enforcement obviously went through you know, their, their missing, their known missing people reports and couldn't find anyone who matched it. You know, a year after the body was discovered in 2004, someone from Lincoln County called and said, you know, I have, I had a, a ranch hand go missing a year or two ago. Maybe it's that person. They were able to figure out that it wasn't that person. Yeah. And so they don't, it, it is a wide, a wide range of it could be it could be a lot of people. The reason, and that's why they really probably weren't able to solve it in 2003, was that they had, you know, a body that was a male that could be within 30 years uh, age and has been missing for maybe a decade or has died within a decade. The thing that's different now is that the sheriff's office has partnered with something called the DNA Doe Project. The, the DNA Doe Project has taken the DNA data from websites like Ancestry.com, and they've been able to figure out that 
this person was related to someone in Kentucky in the 1820s, who was born in Kentucky in the 1820s. This is the same uh, method that was used to catch the Golden State Killer a few years ago. And so that's what they're, they're doing. They're a volunteer group who takes this DNA uh, evidence and analysis and information, and they start going down each and every family tree they can go until they find a connection. So they know, at the very least, that Cliff Doe, the man found in Marion in 2003, was related to someone who was born in Kentucky in the 1820s. And so now they are trying to find where those two people connect. The challenge with that is that that person in Kentucky in 1820 had 10 kids, at least, and then like 100 grandkids. And those kids had more kids and more grandkids and so on and so on. And that, and they're only able to use like published information and published family trees. So like when you see a, an obituary, it's like, oh, they're survived by 10 people. Here are their names. Obituaries don't always have all of the information. That person might have had a kid out of wedlock. He might have had an affair. And there's another two kids over here. And so there's a whole a whole family tree that they're not even looking down. So they might be looking in the wrong area. However, this, like I said, this method has been successful in other places like the Golden State Killer case. There was a, a case of a girl who was found in a, a literal well, like in the 70s in Ohio, and they recently identified her through this same method. And so they're hoping that this method can be used in this case. Sometimes it's very quick and easy. This is proving to be a harder one. And I mean, that's, as you explained it there, the, the generations after generations, a lot of threads to pull at. Are they optimistic that, that they're going to pull the right thread, I guess, ever? And, and if, if, if ever, then, then anytime soon? I mean, there's a good chance we'll, we'll never know. However, there's more of a chance that we will find out who this person was, who Clifto is, then we'll probably find out about how or why he died. You know, I think the the answer to who he is is out there. It, it's down one of these family trees. There's a connection and, and it's a provable answer. Whether someone will find it, not, find it or not, who knows? Unfortunately, we don't, we probably will, will never be able to know how or why he died. There's a lot of ideas about how he died, but there's a good chance we'll never know exactly how. But there is a chance we'll figure out who he was. Well, Justin, thank you so much for, uh, for the story and for, uh, for coming up to chat. Great to, great to talk with you as always. Good to see you. See you next time. You can read Justin's story, Who is Cliff Doe? in this week's Flathead Beacon, available throughout Northwest Montana and online at flatheadbeacon.com. And check out the best long-form journalism we do, stories like this one in Flathead Living Magazine. The fall issue will be available later this month. Now, here are the biggest stories from the last seven days as of 9 p.m. on Tuesday, September 8th. 
There have now been 8,381 confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus in Montana since March, with another 800 or so added to that total in the last week. The state's caseload has been climbing steadily for the last several weeks, and the number of active cases has been crawling upward. That total is at 1,992 as of this recording, with 161 people across the state currently hospitalized. In Flathead County, there are now 151 active cases, according to numbers from the Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services, with 11 of those people currently hospitalized. Nine people have died in Flathead County, six of those deaths stemming from an outbreak at Whitefish Care and Rehabilitation. The long-term care facility was reporting more than half of its residents had tested positive for COVID-19 as of September 3rd. Elsewhere, the Flathead County commissioners reversed course last week and decided against holding an in-person election with open polling places in November. Last Thursday, the commissioners voted 2-1 to one with Randy Brodell in opposition to adopt an all-male ballot system similar to what was done for the June primary. Ballots will be mailed to all voters registered in Flathead County on October 9th, and return postage will be provided. Voters will still be able to vote in person at the county election department if they wish to do so. Flathead County was the largest county in the state planning to hold in-person balloting before the change was made. In making their decision, Commissioners Phil Mitchell and Pam Holmquist cited health and safety concerns as their primary motivator. Responding to unfounded allegations that mail voting is more susceptible to fraud, Mitchell told the Beacon, quote, I'll be blunt, there is no fraud. We have a darn good election department, and there is no fraud. In other news, a museum and cultural center run by the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes was badly damaged in a fire over the weekend, one that was reportedly set intentionally by a man who then barricaded himself inside the building. Julian Draper, a 33-year-old man who lived near the People's Center, died in the fire, which was reported around 8 p.m. on Sunday, September 6th. Draper had been arrested following a fire he intentionally set in late August and was out on bail at the time of Sunday's blaze. Damage at the People's Center was significant and includes the loss of -of one-of-a-kind artifacts and family heirlooms, but CSKT officials said the building's museum and educational center were spared, preserving a number of other precious artifacts. And finally, the city of Kalispell prevailed in a contentious lawsuit filed by a man shot by Kalispell police officers inside his own home in January 2016. Ryan Pengeli, an Army veteran, sued the city in October of 2018, claiming officers acted negligently in entering the home he shared with his mother as they attempted to detain her for a mental health evaluation. Bonnie Pengeli had told co-workers two days earlier that she planned to hurt herself and Ryan's live-in girlfriend and that she had access to weapons. Officers attempted to detain Bonnie on the porch, but entered the home when she resisted, awakening Ryan, who walked out of his room holding an assault rifle. When he refused an initial command to drop the weapon, he was shot four times by Kalispell police officers. Pengeli survived the shooting after a lengthy hospital stay and claimed officers entered his home illegally without a warrant and failed to identify themselves as police upon entry. A 12-person jury ruled unanimously that the officers had not acted inappropriately. 
That's all for this week. Remember to subscribe to the show by searching for Flathead Beacon wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review if you're enjoying what you're hearing. And don't forget, you can read all the latest news from Northwest Montana for free at flatheadbeacon.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.